the, the theme on uh, tonight's message is called The Need for Leadership. And as I think about uh, a need for leadership, I couldn't help uh, but get nostalgic. Uh, so let me go back to my childhood for just a moment. Uh, the first PG movie uh, that I ever saw uh, was Karate Kid. Anybody else? Anybody seen Karate Kid? 1984, uh, release date. Ages me. Um, I know I'm stretching this a little bit, uh, hoping that you've seen this cinemagraphic masterpiece um, that is The Karate Kid. But the plot's really simple. Uh, Daniel uh, gets beat up by one of his peers, one of the people at his school uh, named Johnny. And uh, he's uh, almost beat to a pulp. And Mr. Miyagi, uh, this old, experienced uh, karate master, comes along and splits up the skirmish. And uh, old Johnny knows karate really well. And uh, when Daniel sees Mr. Miyagi and Mr. Miyagi offers to be his teacher, he's excited. He's ready to uh, give him revenge. He wants to learn the kicks, the chops, the blocks. But he shows up at Mr. Miyagi's place, and instead of learning uh, kicks and chops and blocks, he's just doing these menial chores day after day after day after day. And Daniel is super frustrated. He's about ready to quit. But he doesn't know what Mr. Miyagi's really up to in his training. See, all these menial tasks are really building muscle memory for Daniel so that he can do the chops, the blocks, and the kicks. And spoiler alert, he gets pretty good, gets into a tournament, and you know what happens. He beats a tar out of old Johnny at the very end. It's great. But what the movie really demonstrates is the need for leadership. Daniel could not have won his karate match against Johnny without Mr. Miyagi's leadership in his life. But being under leadership, it's really, really, really tough for us as Americans. Um, There's this renowned social psychologist, uh, he's named Geert Hofstede, and he developed this framework for measuring differing cultural dimensions. And one of the cultural dimensions that he measures is called power distance. And power distance refers to the extent which the less powerful members of organizations and institutions accept and expect that power to be distributed unequally. It's a tough definition. But it'll work itself out. You'll see it. And in his research, uh, he found that Westerners, particularly Australians, Americans, and Europeans, have very low power distance scores. But then Asians and South Americans and Africans have much higher power distance scores. In other words... Westerners expect a very flat world in terms of power with very little hierarchy, while the rest of the world understands and accepts power and hierarchy. And so when we, as Americans, encounter some kind of institutional structure, most of us, not all of us, we become highly skeptical. And some of that's for good reason. Because you've been around leaders, you've been around institutions that are corrupt. And when we come to the Bible, the Bible is littered with examples of poor leaders. It's littered with examples of people who do harm to those they lead. We heard of one of those examples from what Rachel read for us from 1 Samuel chapter 13 tonight in King Saul. But right alongside 
the portrayal of corrupt leaders and institutions, the Bible also promotes leadership and institutions. Let me give you some examples. One is the institution of the family. One of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and your mother. And then when we come to the nation of Israel, there are three types of officials who lead the institution that is the nation of Israel. They're kings, they're prophets, and they're priests. And all of those are a shadow of who is to come, the true and better prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. And then Jesus comes and he turns over the keys to the church, of the church, to the apostles. When he gives them to the apostles and the apostles, they train up pastors and elders who then train up more pastors and elders. And we find ourselves here in 2020. And now remember last week. Last week we saw this relationship between Titus and Paul. Highly affectionate. Paul calls Titus his true son. It's because they've been through a lot. Paul's led Titus to faith. And now Paul's mentoring Titus in the faith, particularly as it comes to doing ministry in Crete. Paul and Titus at one time were both in Crete together. They had brought the gospel there for the first time. And many people came to faith in Christ. And then Paul left. And he left Titus in Crete. And he leaves them there with a job. And that's what we read about in our passage tonight. So let's start in verse 5, and we'll read through 16. Remember, this is Paul talking. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination... For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To be pure, all things are pure, but to be defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. The word of the Lord. So there you see it. You see what he's left there to do. He's left there to appoint elders. And this place where he's at, Crete, it's this little island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And it's a place that Paul describes the people as evil beasts, as liars and lazy gluttons. And in case you haven't noticed, we as Christians, when we are converted, we don't change overnight. (laughs) 
So there's a lot of gluttonous, there's a lot of evil beastliness, and there's a lot of lying still in the belly of these Cretans and in their community. And that all needs to be worked out. And so Titus has this huge job. He's got to put this whole church into order. And the first thing to put this church in order is to appoint these elders in every town. See, there are some Christians in this part of Crete and over here and there and over here. They're spread out enough that the issue of geography really was an issue for Titus. He couldn't pastor them all at once and gather them all into one place. So he's going to have to give away leadership. He's going to have multiple elders in each town. And so these early communities of believers, they're not going to flourish as they were intended to flourish without leadership. But do you see what this leadership looks like? Verses 6 to 9 Uh, you see this long list. There's supposed to be above reproach. That's said twice. The husband of one wife, believing children, not given to sensual pleasures, willing to be led, humble, calm, sober, gentle, not greedy, hospitable, lovers of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, committed to the doctrines of the church, able to teach that doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Stout, isn't it? How in the world is Titus going to find any qualified candidates when the bar is so high? Well, one of the ways is, you know, when you think you're disqualified, you might just be qualified. Or to put it the other way, the first requirement is to feel very intimidated as a potential or current elder when you read this list. That's from the vantage point. Those who hold the office or could hold the office. But for those who are being led, the list sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, don't you want someone who's holy and self-controlled and not greedy and above reproach? But then there's one on that list that I think is particularly tough for many of us. It's the husband of one wife. It just seems overly restrictive because it just opens the role of elder to one gender, and that's tough. In fact, to be honest, I've been nervous uh, for weeks about standing before you tonight and preaching just those few words. I've thought about how can I skirt around this? I don't want to be offensive. And as I've thought about the best way to deal with it, um, I've chosen not to give an argument for why our church and our denomination leaves the role of elder for only men. Now, if, if you want to know more about it, then by all means, please email me. I've got an audio file, and a, um, I've got something for you to read, and I'd love to continue to dialogue about it. That's just not what I'm trying to do tonight. Instead, what I want to address are the two reasons why this might be really hard for you. Now, these two reasons might not cover why it's hard for you, but I think it's going to cover why it's hard for some of us. The first one is trauma. The reason male-only elders may be really tough for you and for me is not so much about intellectual disagreement, but it has something to do with past trauma. Before I was a pastor, uh, about seven years ago when I started, um, I had worked in various kinds of ministry for 15 years. 
In those 15 years, I heard all the stats about how many people are abused. And it's hard for me to believe, because here I am in ministry, people are telling me some really intimate things from time to time, and I'd never heard of anyone who was a victim of abuse. No one ever told me that. And then I get ordained and become a pastor, and all of a sudden now, I know more people who have been abused than I can count. And most of the time, these victims of abuse had happened when they were children. And most of the time, it happened someone who was supposed to be a caring male authority in their life. Maybe you're one of those people. You were hurt deeply, and you made a vow that you would never trust another male authority again. If that's you, it makes a lot of sense. I'm really sorry. There's just not a whole lot else to say, is there? Your pain can't be measured. Let me flip this the other way. Maybe you're sitting out there on the screen somewhere on the internet. You're sitting here tonight, and maybe you're really passionate about male-only elders, and maybe the reason is the complete opposite. Maybe it was because you were the victim of a female authority figure hurting you, and you made a vow that you would never trust another female authority figure again. Now, both these experiences of trauma, they could just mean that there's just healing work to be done and that this whole issue is really far less about what you cognitively subscribe to and more about the healing that the great physician needs to bring to your soul. The other reason that this is a really hard thing to talk about um, it's contentious it's because of tears of beliefs I'm talking about this very generically. I didn't read this in a book anywhere. This is just kind of my cumulative pastoral experience and my own wrestling with various theological beliefs. Uh, I grew up in a Southern Baptist tradition. I came to UK. I was around all different kinds of Christians all four years at UK. And then I went to seminary. I went to seminary two different places, actually, and both places were interdenominational, which just means there were uh, Christians of every stripe imaginable in both seminaries I went to. And so that gave me the opportunity. I had to wrestle with all these kinds of things because every, uh, in my class, uh, there, any, any of my classes were probably split on uh, people who came from traditions that only ordained men and those who ordained men and women. And so the way that I've tended to think about things are on three shelves. And each shelf represents a different priority. The top shelf are the top priority, the primary doctrines. And primary doctrines are those that you would die for. They're the ones held by all Orthodox Christians across 2,000 years of church history. Things like the Trinity. Things like the exclusivity of Christ. Things about the, the inspiration of the Bible. Things like... Christ's historical bodily resurrection. 
Those are top shelf. And these common beliefs mean that we can embrace and celebrate all different kinds of traditions in the church outside of our own. And we can work together to see Christ's kingdom come to bear in our world as it is in heaven. And maybe for you, you would say that gender and leadership is a primary issue for you. It's a top shelf issue for you. If that's the case, I've got to challenge it. And here's why. It'll keep you from having unity with a large swath of the church. Think about it. What if I said all people who don't believe in infant baptism are unbiblical? Or what if I said if you don't believe in infant baptism, you're not a Christian? You'd say, come on, Marsh. You're throwing bow. You're throwing bombs across the bow at your brothers and sisters. And if that's what you say to me, you're not asking me to change my position. You're just asking me to make my position on infant baptism less important. In the same way, I'm not necessarily asking you to change your position tonight. I'm just asking you to make it less important. Think about our membership vows. Alexis and um, two others took them last week. Sorry, I can't remember your names. It just happened. Um, I shouldn't have said Alexis. I should have just said the three people who took membership vows last week. Uh, But you guys have seen these vows. Uh, The first one is, are you a sinner? second one is, do you trust in Christ alone? The third one is, uh, do you commit to grow in grace? The fourth one is, do do you um, commit to the work of the church? And the fifth one is, do you submit to the government and leadership of the church? That leaves a whole lot of room to disagree with our church on a lot of non-primary issues. Now let's go to the second shelf. Secondary, secondary, the second shelf and the third shelf. And the doctrines that you put on the second shelf and the third shelf might be different from me or from anyone else in our church. For instance, this whole thing about gender and leadership might be more important to you, so you put it on the second shelf. Whereas for me, I would put it on the third. And what I would say about second shelf doctrines is that the church you go to, you should probably line up with on second shelf doctrines. For me, a second shelf doctrine for me is the doctrines of grace as outlined by the Reformation. I couldn't go to a church that was not reformed in the broadest sense of the word. But for you, that might be a third shelf thing for you. You might disagree with this whole reformed theology thing and you love our church and you have no desire to leave. Why? Because for you, it's third shelf. Let me give a couple words of caution. The first one is to keep the main thing the main thing. It's really easy as Christians for us to build our identity around non-primary issues that cut us off from fellowship with other Christians. Moreover, it very possibly could make you prideful and perhaps even mean. The second one, don't have too many secondary issues. If you do, you are likely looking for a church customized just for you, and that's dangerous. Because if you find that church, it's not going to challenge you. And if you're in a church that won't challenge you, then I bet that Jesus can't challenge you either. All right, deep breath. Right? Or maybe I need to take the deep breath. And based on our context 
Uh, I had to address that just now, but it's not really the point of the text. The point of our text is not focused purely on gender. It's focused on character. Titus is to appoint godly men who've taken their, their leadership in their world and in their home seriously. And if they have taken their leadership in the home and in their world seriously, then they might be fit for leadership in the church. But what's that leadership, at least for Titus, at least in Crete, what's that supposed to look like? We see it in verses 10 to 16. In verses 10 to 16, you see a group of people who have infiltrated the church and they've been upsetting whole families. And they're described with three words. They're rebellious. They're empty talkers or they're shallow. And they're deceptive. See, Paul and Titus, they've set the church in Crete on the right course, but now that right course is in jeopardy. It's in jeopardy because of the influence of these wicked leaders. And these newly appointed elders, according to verse 11, are supposed to silence the wicked leaders in their midst. And according to verse 10, these wicked leaders are described as the circumcision party. Now, people are real excited about circumcision in the first century were Jews. And what the circumcision party did all throughout the New Testament is that they tried to persuade their Gentile Christian brother and sisters to become culturally Jewish. Or they were trying to persuade their Jewish brothers and sisters to retain their Jewishness in ways that were contrary to the gospel. So in other words, the church's biggest problem in Crete weren't people outside the church. They were people inside the church. And the way that you detect the enemies of the church are with those three words, insubordinate, empty talkers, deceptive, insubordinate. I mean, can't you just hear the people in Crete? They're saying Titus is too young. Paul should have stayed. We liked him better. I don't need to take Titus too seriously. He's power hungry. He needs to be more democratic. Who does he think he is? He's appointing elders for us. We need to keep him in check and have these checks and balances in place. Can't you just hear them saying that? It's because they're insubordinate. Second one, they're empty talkers. And empty talkers just means that they've got this religious talk, but it's devoid of Jesus. Sure, they've got some church talk. They've probably got some Bible verses. They're saying some spiritual things, but it lacks that crisp gospel focus. And that's empty talk, and it's here today just as much as it was in Crete in the first century. And you have the deceivers. They're deceptive. It might not be outright lying. It's just not telling the whole truth. And Paul is telling Titus to appoint elders who have their eyes peeled for these kind of people in the church. It's not just that they're wrong, but they're upsetting whole families. They can lead the church astray. And to prevent that, elders are needed so that they can be rebuked sharply. Verse 13. So here we are. We just got through verses 5 to 16. And you see that everybody needs to be eldered. Everybody needs to be led. Paul and Titus need to be led. 
Titus is led by Paul. And then the apostles, you see them leading one another. Galatians 2, Paul corrects Peter. They need to be eldered. Then you have this word elders as plural. Why is that? This plurality allows them to critique one another, allows them to call one another out, that none of them are above authority either. Then you've got the wicked leaders. Did you see the reason that they're to be silenced? Do you see that? The reasons they are to be silenced is they come back to the faith. (laughs) That these calm, gentle, humble leaders are to silence the members of the circumcision party, not excommunicate them, but silence them so that they might repent and be restored to the community at large. So they need to be eldered too. And then the obvious one, the whole church, the whole rest of the church, all the congregants need this leadership. So no one's outside of being led. A little over a year ago, uh, we had become a church in March and it was May. Uh, we, I think we had, a, we had an elder meeting in April. And then in May, uh, I kind of had made up my mind that I was going to walk in there. I was going to tell Phil, Bryce, and Kyle that I wasn't doing very good. I wasn't real sure what I needed. Because when you're a patient, you don't go to the doctor and tell them what you need. right? Uh, when you're a patient, you go to the doctor and let them tell you what you need. So I went in. I told them I wasn't doing great. And uh, I told him I was viewing them as my doctor. I was viewing them as the ones that Jesus would use to set me straight. And when I came, they didn't chide me, but they provided room for me. They provided a healing process for me. So yes, even your pastor needs to be eldered. And can I tell you what will happen if you trust and submit yourself to being eldered? You'll flourish. Just like Daniel and Karate Kid. But can I tell you something else? If you hang around the church long enough, you're going to get hurt by a Christian leader. There's going to be a pastor. There's going to be a Christian leader who's going to let you down. There's going to be someone who's going to cause you pain. And when that happens, you'll be attempted to abandon the church and maybe even Jesus altogether. But can I beg you not to? If you abandon the church and you abandon Jesus, you're going to miss out on the rich blessing of being directly led by Jesus himself. See, in Ezekiel 34, God calls Israel's leaders his shepherds. And he calls them out. He says, hey, you've not been caring for the weak and the injured and the strayed and the sick. Instead, you've been using force and harshness in order to lead my people. And so God pronounces a judgment on them. He says, I'm against the shepherds. I'm going to fire them and I'm going to hire myself. And what God does is he searches for the lost sheep in that passage. He he rescues the sheep who are in danger in that passage. He brings them into rich feeding grounds in that passage. And he finally says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Sounds like Jesus. John 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. 
And Jesus is the one who loves you more than any under-shepherd, any Christian leader, any elder ever will. In fact, he loved you enough to die for you. The good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. See, usually followers lay down their lives for leaders, but Jesus inverts that. And Jesus, the leader of all leaders, lays down his life for his followers. So when your pastor, your under-shepherd, your elder fails you, know that God's judgment awaits. And know, too, that God will overstep your poor leaders, in order to give you concentrated, tender care as he heals you from the wounds of poor shepherds. And brother and sister, trust me, you don't want to miss out on that kind of care. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do pray uh, that you would give us uh, the humility to admit our need to be led. And Lord, we thank you for the promise uh, that even when we can't even find a healthy leader, uh, that you will fill in the gap and that you will lead us yourself. We pray these things in your name. Amen.